Schoon TV family, I have a special guest today for politicking with Curtis Schoon. It's the incomparable Roger Stone, Mr. Roger Stone. Uh, I think we're going to have a very, very intense, intriguing conversation. Mr. Stone, how are you, sir? Curtis, I'm honored to be with you, and I look forward to this opportunity. Oh, man. Listen, first things first, there's some things going on in the news right now. Um, there was talk of Nancy Pelosi, the Speaker of the House, going to Taiwan and the Chinese. The Pentagon being concerned that her plane gets shot down by the Chinese. What are your thoughts on something like that? Well, first of all, we pray for her safety, despite the fact that we are political opponents. Uh, she's an American. She's a representative of the United States of America. Uh, I do think that the Chinese threats are the manifestation of the fact that in every other uh, area of the world, the current administration is demonstrating weakness. Uh, when you uh, withdraw the sanctions on Iran, uh, essentially signaling to them that they can gear back up their uh, nuclear weapons production uh, plans, when you, uh, when you snub the North Koreans, who have now also announced that they're uh, re-upping their plans to develop uh, nuclear weapons, uh, when you withdraw from Afghanistan, which is the right thing to do, by the way, to bring our troops home, but you do so leaving behind literally billions of dollars of sophisticated military equipment and you lose the lives of 13 Americans uh, on the ground. Um, when you send billions of dollars to Ukraine, but you don't insist on any accountability in terms of seeing exactly where that money is going and how it's being spent, well, I think all of those acts are provocative. The Chinese have been harassing American flagged uh, vessels in the South China Sea for some time now, something that certainly did not happen under President Donald Trump. So I think the, the Chinese both have seen weakness uh, in the Biden foreign policy and also there is the very real possibility uh, that uh, President Biden uh, is compromised by his son and apparently his family's extensive business dealings uh, in China. Uh, so uh, it's created a very dangerous situation. They are testing us to see whether we will stand up for our allies uh, on Taiwan or whether they can make a military move on them, um, given the way we're conducting ourselves every place else, it's a very dangerous situation. I would hope that the speaker can conduct her business in Taiwan and return home safely. We're kind of, we as Americans, our government is kind of in a tight spot. If they don't send Nancy Pelosi, it shows weakness. If they stop her from going, and if she goes, the Chinese are interpreting it as an, a, a provocation. Now, 40 years ago, the Chinese primary mode of transportation was a bicycle. How did they get so strong 
to issue threats to the United States of America. I mean, I think I understand what's happening with Biden and he's showing weakness and he's cognitively challenged and all these things, but this has been in the making for a long time. Can we go back to the beginning of that so people can yeah, understand? Absolutely, I think it's important to do so. Look, I, as you know, um, I got my politics uh, and I started under President Richard Nixon. Uh, president Nixon uh, is the president who essentially decided to open door the door to the Chinese uh, and bring them in out of the cold. But let's be clear, at the time that Richard Nixon uh, recognized the Chinese, they had more oxen than they had cars. They were a backwards, poor, agrarian society. It was not until George H.W. Bush gave them most favored nation status, trading status, that made them wealthy, uh, which in turn allowed them to develop the technology to start manipulating our currency, to start stealing our intellectual property online. Uh, and today we turn around and they're buying up large swaths of our real estate. Uh, hundreds of thousands of acres of prime farmland and ranch land, uh, as well as prime real estate, in many cases, buying up ports, buying up toll plazas, buying bridges. So uh, this, is, this, is, uh, this is a direct, I think, manifestation of the Bush policies that were mistaken. People say to me all the time, well, you, you love Nixon, but he created the China problem. No, at the time, you may recall, we were trying to negotiate a strategic arms limitation with the Russians. Uh, and the Russians were starting to go cold on us. Uh, and when that happened, Nixon announced his initiative to visit China, which brought the, the, the Russians right back to the table. We made a historic agreement that probably saved hundreds of millions of dollars in defense spending uh, by the United States and made for a, a safer world. Uh, now we're in a situation where uh, previous administrations did not hold the Chinese responsible for uh, the, the manipulation of our currency, the theft of our intellectual property, uh, property uh, and our trade policies with them were completely unilateral. Uh, Americans couldn't sell goods to China, but China was selling goods to the United States. Uh, the tariffs, and I'm not much of a tariff guy. I'm, I tend to be a free trader, but uh, I think Donald Trump saw the tariffs uh, as a club to get to a more equitable trading deal with the Chinese, and they were working. There's no question that they were working. First thing President Biden did was to lift those tariffs uh, on China. So we have empowered, we as a nation, and it's bipartisan, it's both parties are responsible for this. We have empowered the Chinese now to the point where uh, a, a Chinese president insults the president of the United States in a phone call. And they release the, uh, the, a statement which is an extremely bellicose uh, and insulting statement. So uh, it, it, is, uh, it is probably the most dangerous part uh, of the world today. Um, it, it's interesting when President Clinton um, left office, pardon me, when President Obama left office, he told President Trump that the most dangerous spot in, uh, and most dangerous situation in the world was with the North Koreans. 
we had had a policy of not talking to them, of stiffing them. Uh, and Trump used personal diplomacy to try to bring them into the family of nations and explain to the North Korean leader that he would be much better inside the tent, raising the standard of living of his own people than he would be outside the tent threatening everybody. Uh, that's peacemaking is what that's called. That we didn't show any, we didn't give anything up. It never hurts to talk, never hurts to talk. What, what, what I think causes war is when you don't talk. Now we're not talking about terrorists. We're talking about a nation state that was developing nuclear weapons that are a threat to this country. Okay, so as, as you stated, some people blame Nixon for the beginning of China's growth. Now, in, in July of 1971, Henry Kissinger made a secret trip to China. And in August of 71, August 15th to be exact, Nixon took the US dollar off the gold standard. Is there some connection between the two or are they just two separate things happening at once that work to weaken America? Because it seems like with that, that the dollar coming off the gold standard, we've been in a slow descent ever since and China has been ascending ever since. Are they connected in any way at all? Uh, I think that they are not connected. Let's take them one by one. Okay. Uh, there was really no way for Nixon or Kissinger to foresee that the Bushes would later give the Chinese most favored nation trading stats, which is really what allowed them to build up industrially, financially, and militarily. Taking the United States off the gold standard, probably Nixon's second biggest mistake, an enormous mistake. Uh, by the way, I think he was talked into this by Secretary of the Treasury, John Connolly the same guy who talked him into wage and price controls. Now, if, I, if we're, we, we talk about the great things that Nixon did, there are many. A strategic arms limitation agreement with the Soviets, desegregating the public schools without, without bloodshed, uh, affirmative action, which I'm still, I'm the only conservative you know who's still for affirmative action. I still defend it. I take a lot of crap from my conservative friends but I still defend it because I think it was right. The Philadelphia plan, desegregating the building trades unions, uh, the war on cancer, the, the uh, doing away with the military draft, the 18 year old uh, 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 vote, uh, the saving of Israel uh, from annihilation, the 1973 Yom war, Kippur. Uh, Yom Kippur war, uh, the, uh, th th these are some extraordinarily great accomplishments. The war on drugs, as originally launched by Richard Nixon, was focused at drug traffickers and drug dealers. It was not until 1994 that the war on drugs under Senate Judiciary Committee Chairman Joe Biden and President Bill Clinton, uh, in which they forced through the harsh mandatory penalties for the first time, nonviolent crime of possession of small amounts of drugs, uh, which has fallen disproportionately on people of color. And it is, it is indisputable that under, uh, under the 94 bill, the penalties for powdered cocaine used by rich white people are harsher than the penalties for rock cocaine 
used disproportionately by poor people and people of color. That is racist. I have said this for 30 years. I've written about it. Uh, I have uh, marched against it. Uh, I've crusaded against it. Uh, and who is it that gets us for the first time any kind of criminal justice reform? Strangely enough, it's President Donald Trump in the First Step Act and the Second Chance Act. Then, uh, so uh, I would say that the, the war on drugs as begun by Nixon gets perverted by Biden and Clinton, largely for political reasons, because they want to look tough on crime. And the result of that is the mass incarceration of hundreds and hundreds of thousands of young black people. And then secondarily, I've seen this tactic before. Running for his third term in New York, Nelson Rockefeller wanted to look tough on crime. So he puts in place the Rockefeller drug laws, which are the most draconian drug laws in the country, in which people are, are sentenced to these draconian uh, sent long sentences in the state penal system for the possession of tiny amounts of drugs for personal use. I spoke out against the Rockefeller drug laws. I spoke at a giant rally in Manhattan. Andrew Cuomo was a, another speaker there. Al Sharpton was another speaker there. These are not things that you would expect from your typical Republican. Uh, but uh, to go back to your question, I think the war on drugs got perverted, taking us off the gold standard, probably Nixon, Nixon's single greatest mistake. Wow. So Yes, you did. Some people say you are behind the movement to repeal the Rockefeller laws. Is there, is there any truth to that? Uh, I was certainly, I worked with Tom Galasano, a billionaire uh, out of uh, Rochester, uh, and, uh, and many others to, uh, to get the reforms that we've gotten. By the way, New York's uh, drug laws are still uh, disproportionate. They're still, they're better. They have been reformed. They could be reformed more. But I recognize that, that the, uh, the system was inherently broken. I met people, I met families uh, who had family members, both men and women, um, who'd been locked in the bowels of the state uh, penal system for 15, 20, 25 years. Uh, and their crime was, you know, they received an envelope with a small amount of marijuana in it. So, uh, so I, I'm, I don't... Uh, I certainly can't take credit for the reform of those, but I worked with many other good people, both Republicans and Democrats, for the reform in the Rockefeller drug laws. Speaking of which, you've worked with both uh, Black Democrats and Black Republicans to raise funds. Care to name a few? Well, I mean, for that particular endeavor? No, 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 just in general, politically. Because I saw when you worked with Al Sharpton when he was running for president. Al, Al I was Sharpton, a little surprised by that. Uh, Sharpton and I are friends. Now, I'm not sure how, how anxious he is to admit it these days. Okay. Uh, but th there was a time that we, were, we got along very well. Sharpton is a showman. Uh, he's a rogue. There's no question about it. But the, the issue that brought us together was the Rockefeller drug laws. I, I was a critic. He was a, a harsh critic. Uh, and during his presidential bid, um, you know, as you know, there's always a great internal rivalry between he and Jesse Jackson. Uh, and Sharpton had a number of technical questions about how to get delegates on the ballot. 
uh, and I helped him out in the sense that I introduced him to Democrats I knew who were knowledgeable in these areas uh, and would help him. Uh, we are still friendly today, uh, despite the fact that I think he's probably moved uh, further to the left. I mean, this is a guy who endorsed Al D'Amato for the US Senate uh, in, in New York, let's remember that. Uh, and now that he is uh, more of a media phenomena, uh, he's a lot more partisan than he used to be. Um, but yes, uh, I was helpful to him on a personal level. He knows that our politics are fundamentally different, except for when it comes to the area of, of drug law reform, um, where we were very much in lockstep. So you're saying that assistance was genuine and there wasn't another Pat Buchanan situation, like the Reform Party? The Pat Buchanan thing, um, as written by the Village Voice, is largely uh, false. Uh, no, I think, first of all, uh, I did think that Sharpton, like Jackson, had an opportunity to roll up some delegates and have influence. I, I, don't, I never thought he was going to be the nominee of the Democratic Party. Um, I was never much of a Bush Republican. I think people know that. Uh, the Bushes were not my cup of tea because I don't think they really believed in anything. And if you go all the way back and you read my book on the Bush crime family, uh, the Bushes were major, major funders of eugenics. They, they call it Planned Parenthood later, but it's really eugenics. Uh, and eugenics is the destruction of any peoples that, that they felt were inferior. It doesn't matter whether it was a person with a physical defect, say a, uh, somebody with a club foot or somebody who was deaf, or a person of color. So I, I think uh, the, the Bushes were never uh, my cup of tea within the Republican Party. And I was well aware of Prescott Bush, who was the US Senator from Connecticut, a partner uh, at Brown Brothers Harriman, uh, elected to the Senate in my home state of Connecticut in 1952. Uh, I, I was well aware of his record as a major funder uh, of eugenics. And that is something I strongly disagree with. Prescott Bush's name has been mentioned with the, the Nazis in World War II. Are those allegations, uh, are, they, are they true or any veracity to that? They're, they are entirely accurate. Um, it's very interesting. So Prescott Bush was a partner at Brown Brothers Harriman. Uh, his partner was Averill Harriman. Harriman was arranging the financing for the arming of Joseph Stalin and the, and the Red Russian Army. At the same time, Prescott Bush was arranging the financing for the armament of the Third Reich. The, Prescott Bush's bank, the Union Bank, was seized by the Roosevelt administration uh, for those dealings, which were illegal. If Prescott Bush didn't belong to the right clubs, if he wasn't part of the establishment, I think he would have been prosecuted. Here's the amazing thing, thing uh, Curtis. After I wrote this, and after I reproduced the documentation in my book, those documents disappeared from the National Archive. They're not there anymore. They're gone. You can see copies of them in my book. You can also see copies of them in Russ Baker's book on the Bush family. Uh, but yes, you can also find news stories, contemporary news stories at, at the time. So yeah, Prescott Bush was Adolf Hitler's personal banker. That's just a fact. 
I, there's a lot of this both sides in history. Like I saw where the Bank of England and Deutsche Bank helped the Nazi party as well. And um, even when it came down to, to Mao and Chiang Kai-shek, there, there's talk of the West deliberately undermining Chiang Kai-shek, which created the situation we have today in Taiwan. Any truth to that? And why does it seem like the same people are helping both sides in so many of these conflicts? Well, because I think there are certain people uh, among the ruling elite, the global elite, uh, that control both parties, really, uh, when you get right down to it, um, who put wealth and power uh, ahead, of, ahead of allegiance to country. Uh, I myself, you know, I get criticized, but I put God first. Okay, I don't put the country before God. I put God before the country. Uh, but then after my Christian beliefs, uh, I do believe this is a Christian-based nation. So uh, I put my country second. Does that make me a nationalist? Yeah, I guess it does. I, I believe in my country. I support my country. Am I white? Yeah, I am white. So I guess I'm a white nationalist. But this has now become a, an insult. What's aggravating is that with a with a... 30-year record of fighting the racist war on drugs with a with a almost 30-year record, it's a little shorter, 20-year record of fighting the Rockefeller drug laws, with a 10-year record of, of, of proposing and pushing for a posthumous presidential pardon for Marcus Garvey, uh, which is something I feel very strongly about and that I lobbied President Trump very strongly for. I was not successful. I was happy when he issued the posthumous pardon for Jack Johnson. Symbolically, I think that was important, but I would still like to, if he does get back to the White House, and who knows, he might. I hope that he would issue a, a pardon for Garvey. I didn't even know who Marcus Garvey was until I was poking around in the basement of the Strand Bookstore in New York City one, one weekend, and I found a very obscure biography on Garvey uh, and it was very compelling. Here was a, a man who was preaching education, preaching responsibility, preaching uh, free enterprise, uh, pe preaching preaching uh, 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 civil self rights, self-reliance, self and, and civil rights. Mm -hmm. uh, and he became a serious threat to the white power structure. Uh, and therefore, they framed him for tax evasion. The FBI in the 20s framed him for tax evasion. Uh, I think, and, and uh, I have always felt strongly about this. Uh, I started lobbying Trump as soon as he was elected for a posthumous pardon uh, for Garvey. Uh, those are just some examples. I pointed out my support for affirmative action. When I was working for President Reagan uh, and he decided not to extend the Voting Rights Act, I wrote a piece on that, uh, opposing his position. It was for the Washington Times. So now I pick up, a, a, you know, you can go on Twitter and you read that I'm a white supremacist. No, I'm not. That, that's just, a, that's a smear. That's just a lie. It, it's name calling by people who have no frame of reference in terms of, you know, my 40 years in American politics. Am I perfect? No, not at all. Have I said and done things that I regret? You bet, show me who hasn't. But on these issues where deeds are what matters, 
I think my record's pretty good. Yes, uh, you know, um, former President Trump has been accused of of being a white supremacist and a racist. And I grew up in New York. I'm a New Yorker. I'm a native New Yorker. Um, but I found it kind of strange that beginning in 2013, with a documentary called The Central Park Five, that this began this current campaign to label him a racist. Could this documentary have been part of some dirty trick, knowing that he was going to run for president? Because he's been he's been tagged with that the whole time that he was in office. Did they have the foresight or was it just happenstance? Well, first of all, let's recognize that he is the president, the only president in our lifetime who actually gets criminal justice reform. Which, which disproportionately has affected hundreds and hundreds of thousands of black people. Uh, by pushing through the first chance, the, the First Step Act, uh, and then uh, follows up with the Second Chance Act. Democrats in the House who favor criminal justice reform vote against those acts, not because they were imperfect, but just because he sponsored them. Uh, he, he, the American people, thanks largely to the tabloids, jumped to an assumption that the Central Park Five were guilty and, I, and he held to that for a long period of time. Uh, he reiterated that at a time when I think it had been disproven. Uh, and it's not something I would have done if I were him, but he is, as you can see, very much his own man. Uh, again, the words and deeds. When it came to deeds, you had the lowest level of black unemployment in the entire country in the history of the country. You had the highest number of black people working uh, and you had the greatest increase uh, in wage growth uh, in that group and all groups under the Trump presidency. So I think his overall record has to be viewed within that context. Do you think he's gonna run again? I do think he's going to run again. I actually think these attacks on him make it more likely that he run than, than less likely that I run, that he run. But I would have to say this, the most predictable thing about Donald Trump is that he's completely unpredictable. How old will he be in 2024? I think he would be uh, 76, I believe. So he'd still be uh, younger than Joe Biden. But you know, age is just a number. Uh, when Reagan ran for president uh, the second time, really the third time, because he did run in 1968. They kind of rewrote history to claim that wasn't true, but he did make a last minute bid for the nomination uh, in Miami Beach at the convention when he converted from being a favorite son candidate to being a real candidate. Uh, then he ran again in 76, challenging Gerald Ford. Then he ran again in 1980. Um, we were told he was too old. He wasn't too old. He goes down as one of our greatest presidents. And of course, he went on to even get reelected. So um, I, I think it has to do not so much with your numerical age, but with your, uh, your sharpness, your stamina, your level of energy. And on that basis, I think he's certainly physically and mentally fit to run for another term if he chooses to do so. Now, as you know, Curtis, only... One president has ever really done this. It was also a New Yorker, Grover Cleveland, um, who was president, was defeated for the presidency, came back the following uh, term and won the presidency back. 
It has never been done before other than that one time. Uh, but then we never had a business person uh, as president. Prior to Donald Trump, every president had been a senator or a governor or a general or a congressman. And he, of course, was none of those things. This is amazing because I, I'm hearing all this talk about DeSantis in Florida. What do you think his prospects are? Um, well, just, he's a very interesting guy. I mean, first let's recognize that, that DeSantis was an obscure congressman that no one had ever heard of. Uh, he ran for governor at a time that the Florida Republican Party was fully lined up behind another candidate, the, uh, the state agriculture commissioner, Adam Putnam. That means that 47 Republican county chairmen endorsed Putnam. Every single Republican in the state legislature where Republicans control both the House and the Senate uh, endorsed Adam Putnam. Every Republican member of Congress with the exception of one endorsed Adam Putnam. Uh, he was the odds on favorite. Uh, Ron DeSantis was, a, uh, was uh, I think a two-term congressman from the St. Augustine area. Uh, and his endorsement by Donald Trump lifted him out of the pack and catapulted him to victory for uh, the Republican nomination. Then he faced a very formidable uh, opponent in Tallahassee Mayor uh, Gillum. Uh, say whatever you want about Gillum's personal problems. He was a very charismatic, very articulate, very attractive candidate. And because he had been a mayor of a major city, he had a superior grasp on state issues. Whereas Ron DeSantis had been in the Congress. Uh, and I think if he had his brothers, he really wanted to run for the US Senate rather than run for governor. Uh, but because he doubted that he could defeat Rick Scott, the multi-multi-millionaire who was governor, who's now in the U.S. Senate, uh, he elected to run for governor. What people don't recognize is that thanks to the fact that Donald Trump came to Florida twice in the last two weeks, he dragged Ron DeSantis over the finish line by a mere 30,000 votes, skin tight. So... I'm a great believer in loyalty. I think loyalty is very, very important. And Ron DeSantis was made <clears throat> by Donald Trump. Uh, I do think that he has, uh, that he's going to run for president. I think he's going to run regardless of what the former president does. Uh, he has amassed $130 million in his uh, campaign fund. That's unheard of here in Florida. Uh, no one has ever spent uh, more than 70 million, I think 75, and that was self-funding by Rick Scott who wrote himself a check. Florida is not a Republican state and it's not a Democrat state. It's neither red nor blue, it's a purple state. It's very, very close. It's very evenly divided uh, and therefore you cannot assume, as some people do, uh, that Governor DeSantis's reelection is, uh, is going to be some kind of landslide. It definitely will not. Uh, and it's certainly not a lead pipe cinch. It is not a sure thing. I think it is a likely thing, but it is, it is not a sure thing. So um, just in terms of getting the cart before the horse, 
uh, I think Governor DeSantis should focus on his reelection this November before he decides whether he's going to run for president. And therein lies a very formidable question. Uh, is Democratic opponent who could either be uh, former Governor Charlie Crist uh, or current state agriculture commissioner Nikki Freed is going to put a hard question to Ron DeSantis. If you're reelected, will you pledge to fill out the term and serve the people of Florida? Or are you going to get reelected and just use Florida as a stepping stone to run off and run for president? There's a lot of people in this state who really, really like Ron DeSantis, but that doesn't mean they want him to leave the job he's in now. They want him to finish the job he's in now. He's only 42 years old. He's got plenty of time to be president. Um, but I, this is just an opinion. I think that uh, the two men are on a collision course. Um, and uh, if you go on the basis of polling, Trump would appear to have the upper hand in that contest. You will read and see a lot of media reports that will tell you that Republican Party leaders are tired of the drama uh, created by President Trump. They're tired of his, of his, uh, of his bombastic leadership style. Uh, and that may be true, but those are the same people who weren't for him in 2016, and they probably weren't really for him in 2020. At the grassroots of the party, where people vote uh, at, at the par uh, at, in the primaries and in the caucuses, if anything, Trump is now stronger than he was before. Speaking of age of presidential candidates and presidents, in, in 1988, Joe Biden suffered two cerebral aneurysms. In the early 2000s, he was diagnosed with a heart problem that caused dizziness and confusion. Why, why Biden? Why was he the choice? And is he really in charge right now? There are days he seems like he's someone different. His voice, his tone, We've seen him fall up steps, fall off a bicycle. Why did, why did the Democratic Party nominate such a fragile candidate? Uh, it, it's an excellent question. I think that uh, the party leaders uh, recognized that the potential uh, nomination of Senator Bernie Sanders was potentially disastrous, uh, that he would be another McGovern, um, and therefore, they were looking for another candidate. Um, I think the Obamas quietly sponsored two candidacies, that of Kamala Harris uh, and that of Cory Booker. Neither one of those candidacies caught fire, not for lack of resources. Uh, so in the end, um, I think Joe Biden uh, had the advantage of kind of being the right place at the right time. And in many ways, the last person standing uh, and therefore, um, he became the Democratic Party nominee. His performance, I would agree with you, seems very uneven. Um, we don't wish him any ill will, um, but there are days in which he seems extraordinarily frail uh, and confused. Um, I've questioned whether he will finish the term um, or whether perhaps his own party under the 25th Amendment of the Constitution um, will see fit to remove him 
uh, after the election. Were that to happen uh, legally, what, what then transpires uh, to, first of all, to enact the 25th Amendment requires a majority of the cabinet plus the acquiescence of the vice president. Uh, upon enactment of the 25th Amendment, um, which by the way, Biden could pardon his son and his brother, perhaps even himself on the way out the door, uh, Kamala Harris would become president. She would then have uh, the right to appoint a vice president, but that vice president would have to be confirmed in both houses of Congress, both the Senate uh, and the House. Uh, normally, uh, that would be perfunctory. So for example, um, when Nixon resigned, Ford became president. Ford uh, appointed uh, Nelson Rockefeller. Nelson Rockefeller, although he was a Republican, was confirmed by Democrats in both houses. Um, whether that would happen in our more polarized politics of today? Well, first of all, you need a crystal ball to know who's gonna control both houses of Congress next year. And I think that's an open question. There's no question that the backdrop for a Republican resurgence is there between gasoline prices, food shortages, uh, inflation, um, and what appears to me to be a disastrous foreign policy. Um, the backdrop is certain there, certainly there, but in politics, a month is a lifetime, a week is a lifetime. Uh, and therefore we don't know what the results uh, of the coming elections will be. It would appear that the Republicans will make a comeback, but that could end up in their winning control of the House, but losing control of the Senate by one vote. Uh, we, it's just too early to know, uh, but that, that is what would transpire if Biden were to vacate the office uh, early. You mentioned Hunter Biden, his ties to Burisma, there's, there's talk of investigations at the DOJ right now. What's going on in Ukraine? Ukraine is one of the most corrupt countries in the world. Some people say it's a money laundering country. Any connections to the war in Ukraine right now and, and this, the ties, alleged ties to the Biden family? I think there has been some really extraordinary reporting by the New York Post in this entire area. Uh, it appears to me that Hunter Biden is connected to the, uh, the businesses that are running the, the bioweapons labs, which do exist in Ukraine. Uh, there's clearly dealings with both Russia uh, and Ukrainians and the Chinese, as well as domestic uh, uh, issues. So yeah, I think that this, this is a giant issue. I also think it is one of the reasons why ultimately the Democrats may choose to download Joe Biden because the, the baggage of his son's dealings, which by the way, we, now, we learned last week that he met with his son's clients 14 times. And this is documented, but he told us he never met with any of them and he knew nothing about it. So I think this is, this is a beginning to, be, uh, to catch up with him uh, in a very substantial way. Uh, He's now been under investigation for almost three years without charges. Um, and I, I don't know what's going to happen. I do know that when the initial reporting on this came out, there was a major effort by, by corporately owned and mainstream media to essentially you know, blacklist the story, to 
there was a media blockade. Oh no, they told us all that stuff about Hunter Biden. That's Russian disinformation. Well, now even the New York Times admits that it was not Russian information and that all this information about his illegal lobbying, uh, his, uh, he and his family's multi-million dollar participation in multiple deals, it's all very real. I've seen some information that there's about five major companies that own all of media. Not all, but 95% of media in America. So do we have an independent media or, or, or don't we? How could everyone just come together and block this out at one time? Well, we do not have an independent media. In fact, I would argue that for the first time in the history of our country, uh, that all mass communications, uh, whether it is network television, cable television, corporately owned radio, which is slowly squeezing out, you know, the independent mom and pop owned radio stations, all print media, newspapers, magazines, and most definitely the internet are both controlled uh, and censored. Uh, when I was banned from Twitter in 2017, I had 890,000 followers, nearly a million followers. When I was banned on Facebook, I had 3.5 million followers. When I was banned on Instagram, I had 85,000 followers. Uh, when I was banned on TikTok, hadn't been there very long. I was just trying to prove a point since I was falsely accused of lying to Congress about Russian collusion, which we now know didn't exist. It's impossible to lie about something that didn't happen, if you think about it. Uh, when I pointed out that Dr. Fauci had lied under oath uh, about uh, the funding uh, by US taxpayers of the development uh, of the uh, virus in the Chinese lab, I was banned on TikTok like that. So um, I, I, just, I, I guess I'm an early example um, Plato, I think, said no one is as hated as the truth teller. Um, I call them as I see them, uh, and it has cost me a platform. Um, uh, that's why I'm very grateful to be with you here today. Any opportunity to have a civilized discourse on the issues is something that I welcome uh, because you're not going to read my point of view on Twitter. I get attacked on Twitter. I'm actually trending on Twitter right now, even, we, even as we speak. How do you trend on Twitter when you're not even on Twitter? You're not even allowed to be on Twitter. You're not even allowed to defend yourself. So uh, I, think it, I think it is true. I think that it is, uh, there is broad-based censorship uh, in the country and it is a, it's a giant problem. You said you might, you're trending now. Does it have anything to do with the story about Matt Gates claiming that he, uh, they said they have some kind of tape or something. I didn't read it. That yeah, it's, it's, it's promised really, that you, you would yeah, get it's a pretty, pardon. Pretty, it's pretty, first they said, Stone always had a secret deal with Trump to pardon him, so he was never worried. Well, that's not true. Uh, and yes, I was in a public forum um, where I got picked up on a hot mic uh, lobbying Matt Gates to tell the president that he should pardon me, which is perfectly legal. And by the way, consistent with things that Gates had already said publicly that he favored a pardon for me, that he thought the president should pardon me. So I'm not sure where the news in this, I mean, there's no news in this story. But Curtis, you reach a certain point where 
I am right now at almost 70 years old, I'm clickbait. Put my name in a headline and you get more clicks and therefore you make more money. This is a non-story story. The Gates supported a pardon for me is a matter of public record. He said it himself multiple times that, that when I saw him uh, at a conference, I told him that I was praying that the president would pardon me. And he told me that he thought he would. And he did. Nothing improper here. Nothing illegal here. But it does disprove the claim of Hillary Clinton and Jerry Nadler and Adam Schiff and others that, oh, Stone always had a secret deal with Trump where he would uh, where he would remain silent about unspecified uh, improper actions by Trump in return for a pardon. That is a despicable lie for which there is no evidence whatsoever. Your history with Trump goes back 40 years, correct? That is correct. Yeah. 42 to be exact. 42 from 79, right? Correct. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and you met him through Roy Cohn? Yes. Or... Yes. I was sent to New York to, um, to organize Governor Ronald Reagan's campaign for president. The New York Republican establishment um, was still in control of the Rockefeller forces. Uh, the, uh, the, uh, the party establishment in New York uh, was either lined up for George H.W. Bush, where he told you my opinion of him uh, and his family, uh, or for former Treasury Secretary John Connolly, a few of them. Uh, but I had to go build a grassroots organization. Uh, somebody uh, put me in touch with Roy Cohn because they told me Cohn had represented Trump as a lawyer. Uh, and I wanted to get in to see Trump to try to convince him to join our finance committee and to support Governor Reagan. Uh, and it um, took me quite a while to get through uh, to Roy Cohn. He pretty much ignored my various phone calls and letter I wrote him, but ultimately, I met him, uh, he agreed to make the introductions, but he basically said, look kid, I'll, I'll get you in to see Trump, but then you gotta sell yourself. I mean, you, got, you, got, you make the case. So um, I saw Trump and um, he was much shrewder politically than I thought. Uh, he and his father had traditionally been Republicans, but they'd given money to both sides. That's how most billionaires are, by the way. Um, and he had had high hopes for Jimmy Carter. He hoped that Carter would change things, that Carter would be a, a breath of fresh air. He was disappointed by the weakness of the Carter presidency, both in terms of their economic policies and their foreign policies. He had been visited by every presidential candidate uh, in the Republican side. I remember our conversation went like this. I said, uh, well, did you meet Senator Howard Baker? Yeah, I had no idea the guy was so short. I said, did you meet George Bush? He said, God, that guy's shaking hands like shaking hands with a fish. That guy was weak. Why would anybody vote for that guy? Uh, John Connolly said, yeah, I met him. I had to count my fingers when the guy left. So he was, he was very open to the idea. And I pitched him. He asked me a lot of hard questions. Can Reagan still carry California? Uh, can Reagan, will Reagan win the New Hampshire primary? What kind of shape are you in in the Iowa caucuses? You get to the general election. How does Ohio look? How does Pennsylvania look? Do you really, do you think that you, do you think you can win Florida? Um, Trump was much more political than one might have thought. 
Uh, and But then he said something very shrewd and he said, look, we live in the television age. Reagan is the ultimate television candidate. He has the look. He has the look. And that's why I think he's going to get nominated and also why I think he's going to get elected. He said, I have the look, speaking of himself, but I'm not really interested in running for president. So uh, it was kind of a, a little foresight there. And of course, he's right. It was Reagan's telegenic presence uh, that made him a terrific candidate. It's interesting because uh, Kamala Harris is from California. She's not an actress. She, I don't think she's telegenic. Um, and I'm not trying to be disrespectful, but she barely... She barely polled in her state. I think she was at 3% or something. Why was she chosen to be on the ticket? If you can't win your state, what? if she didn't have any support, she dropped out early. Why was she placed on the ticket with Biden? Well, as you recall, Biden had said at some point um, that he was going to choose a black woman running mate. Why her uh, though? And, and, and that he had, that, but that does, boxed him to a certain extent. Uh, she also, I think, had the confidence uh, of the Obamas, who I believe are extremely influential behind the scenes in this administration. Um, she, she certainly, you didn't need her on the ticket to ca carry California. You were gonna carry California anyway. California is now a habitually democratic state. So um, I, I thought it was a weak chance, a choice, it has proven to be a weaker choice than even I thought, frankly. Her performance uh, is not what you would expect of someone who had been state attorney general, uh, who'd been a US senator. Um, she would be an extremely weak candidate in 2024 uh, if she ends up in that position. Um, her mentor was former San Francisco Mayor Willie Brown. and. You know Willie Brown, don't you? Willie Brown is a friend of mine. Willie Brown is one of the best dressed men on the face of the planet. And uh, for many years um, uh, on New Year's Day, I would uh, compile and publish a list of the internationally best and worst dressed people uh, in the world from all walks of life, whether they be athletes, celebrities, movie stars, socialites, business people, politicians. It's not a partisan list. I had Democrats uh, on my best addressed list. And then I had Steve Bannon on my worst addressed list. Uh, so uh, Willie and I became friends decades ago when I was in California representing some companies who were exploring the uh, legalization of casino gambling uh, in California, which never actually happened. Um, but, but we had mutual friends. Um, and and uh, Willie is, uh, I really like Willie. He's a great storyteller. He's a great politician. Uh, he's a very decent man. Uh, I never had the opportunity to discuss Kamala with him. I didn't even know who she was at, at the time. Oh, that was my next question. Did you ever cross paths with him? But uh, uh, there it is. So now well, here we are in 2022. We have the midterm elections in front of us. Um, there's a proxy war going on with Ukraine, NATO, the West, America. 
China's talking recklessly. We're still rebounding from COVID. And now they're talking about monkeypox. What do you see for America in the next year? Well, first, let me address the question uh, of Ukraine. Uh, but before I do that, let me point out that I am uh, I'm of Hungarian-American descent, and I had relatives mowed down by Russian tanks in Budapest in 1956. So anybody who accuses me of having any affinity uh, or allegiance to the Russians or Putin doesn't understand my family history. That said, we agreed in 1994 that Ukraine would remain a nuclear buffer nation, that Ukraine would not join NATO. Let's define that. Putin's great concern, which he has said consistently for two years, is he does not want Western missiles pointed at his country based uh, in Ukraine. This is very much like the position of John Kennedy, who did not want Russian missiles 90 miles off of our shore in 1962. Uh, we actually reached an agreement uh, with the Russians uh, under um, uh, under George W. Bush, uh, that we would not uh, push uh, the membership of NATO. NATO would remain neutral. The idea that Putin is just trying to seize Ukraine to restore the faded glory of the once great Soviet Union doesn't hold up economically. He can't afford to prop them up. He's got his own economic problems. Now you add to it, um, I think the very credible claim that we are finding financing biotech lab, bioweapons labs in the country, cooking up God knows what to dump in his country. I think this could have been solved diplomatically. Uh, I, I think we could have averted all of this loss of life uh, and the horrific atrocities, uh, what appeared to me to be on both sides, um, if we had simply agreed to stick to our agreement in 1994 and not have. Ukraine join, uh, join NATO. Now, as soon as you say that, you're immediately attacked as some kind of a stooge for Vladimir Putin. No, I don't, I don't have any truck for Vladimir Putin. He's a thug. He's an authoritarian thug. But I understand why he's doing what he's doing. And it just doesn't make sense to me to ship 40 billion, I guess it's just a down payment, but to ship $40 billion to Ukraine and then vote against an amendment to have a US inspector general keep track of where that money is going. That doesn't make any sense to me. When we cannot seal our own border, when we have homeless veterans in the streets, when we have a crime epidemic, when we have citizens in this country who are hungry, uh, it just doesn't make sense to me to ship $40 billion, which I'm told is, will soon be $100 billion, to Ukraine without keeping track of it. So. Uh, I'm a critic of the war in Ukraine. That immediately, my, me, Tucker Carlson, handful of others, oh, you're a, you're a stooge for Putin. No, I'm just not for World War III, certainly not over Ukraine. If, if Putin had made it clear that that was the red line for Ukraine to join NATO, so when Zelensky expressed intentions to join NATO, that was a direct provocation, was it not? Yes, I, I make the case that Putin is acting defensively. Uh, look, Zelensky appears to me, he's an, he was an actor before he was president. 
I think he's playing the role of president. Uh, the amount of money that we're sending there without dealing with our own problems in this country makes no sense to me. Um, I would hope that we would reach a diplomatic settlement relatively soon. The amount of war propaganda uh, is extraordinary. I mean, if you read the US-based press, you would believe that the Ukrainians are kicking the crap out of the Russians, but people in the military that I know tell me that isn't the case, that that's not accurate, but it is the template for shipping over more money, more and more and more money. So um, yes, I think this would never have happened if Trump were president. Trump would have negotiated a settlement. Uh, we don't want the Russians to run Ukraine. We don't want them taking over the sovereign nation of Ukraine. But the Russians don't want uh, our missiles, NATO missiles, Western missiles aimed at their country. We've already built the silos. It's just talking about dropping in uh, the, the weapons. Max Blumenthal, who's an extremely left progressive uh, and certainly no friend of Roger Stone's, has done some of the best writing and reporting on this. We are the ones provoking the problem in Ukraine. The Biden administration is tone deaf on this and they they may drive us to World War III. Where did an actor, because Zelensky was an actor on a hit TV show in Ukraine, where he played the president of Ukraine. How unbelievable is that? And now he's the president, but someone had to have told him to do this. Or did he just come to this decision on his own? I think I think he's a, I think he's a front front man for moneyed interests uh, in the country. Look, we we overthrew a duly elected uh, government there in, in 2014. Yeah. Uh, it was it was a U.S. sponsored coup. Uh, I'm not arguing the guy who was in there was perfect, but he had been elected in a, an election that we recognized, uh, and then we deposed him. Uh, and uh, I think it, I think the oligarchs of that country uh, and some involved in the United States have inserted uh, this guy uh, as president. I think he and his wife appearing on the cover of Vogue magazine uh, was a, a strategic public relations mistake. Makes it look like they're enjoying this whole enterprise. Yeah, she's a screenwriter as well too, yeah. But uh, so that that's the case with Ukraine. Um, it looks like it's going to expand. Putin doesn't seem to be backing down. And just recently, Russia and China have announced that they're planning to do uh, create some world reserve currency of their own, which would threaten the dollar as the world reserve currency because they do a lot of trade. Then you have the BRICS organization and so on and so forth. Where is this all going for us as a country? If, if the dollar is no longer the reserve currency and we have war in Europe and pending war in the Pacific and we have Joe Biden or Kamala Harris as president, what does that say for us? What does it Pot say potential, potential disaster. And Curtis, just a few years ago, we had the strongest, most vibrant economy in our history. Uh, and we were respected around and feared uh, around the world. Uh, and we had a program that uh, putting America first, all Americans first. We had the 
lowest levels of unemployment across the board, black, white, Asian, women, and so on. Uh, we're moving towards full employment. Uh, and now look where we are today. So, uh, you know, I do a lot of praying about this, to be honest with you, uh, but the country's in desperate trouble. Uh, and when you stand up and say that, well, then you're accused of being a domestic terrorist. No, we have, we have a constitutional right to question our government. Uh, that doesn't make you a terrorist. It doesn't make you a white supremacist. Uh, it makes you a concerned American. Uh, I think the country's in deep trouble. Um, I, I am a, I'm not a neocon. I don't think we should be running around the world looking for foreign wars to get into where we have no inherent interest. I was against the Iraq war at the time, said so, wrote about it at the time. Um, I, I think we should take care of our own first economically before we start spending money uh, on foreign adventures where we seem to be looking for trouble, but where our own inherent national interests are just not clear. You were also against the, the Libyan invasion, am I, am I correct? Most I most certainly was, absolutely. Early in our conversation, the topic of global elites who don't see themselves as part of any country are in existence and they fund both sides of conflicts throughout history, throughout the world. Is it possible that America is in the clutches of those global elites right now? I think it is virtually a certainty. Uh, you know, when, when, when uh, Mark Zuckerberg can spend billions of dollars to an effect an American election where you and I could not legally do that, and there are no, there are no consequences. Um, yes, I think the ruling elite um, have perverted, uh, I hate to use the expression, our democracy, because we're not a democracy, we're a republic. But I, I think the, the process of, of free communications uh, has uh, been perverted. So now that we have cancellation and censorship, um, we, are, we have uh, uh, less and less free speech. Uh, we have, we have uh, a government committed to foreign war. Um, our priorities seem to, be, uh, seem to be completely out of whack. Yes, I think uh, that the country is run by a ruling elite. And this is very important. They're in both parties. This is not Republicans or Democrats. This is, this, this, these are the elites of both parties. Uh, and they like business as usual. And the 2016 election was supposed to be a choice between Hillary Clinton and Jeb Bush. Uh, and the policies were pretty much identical. More endless foreign war, continued erosion of our civil liberties, uh, more and more and more debt, uh, the, uh, the continuing decline uh, of America. The, and this neocon policy of going around the world looking for the next foreign war. Uh, and then Donald Trump, by my own admission, the most improbable presidential candidate, the most unlikely presidential candidate rises as a populist uh, and, he, uh, and he upsets the, the globalist apple cart. This is why they hate him so much. Uh, and on his way to reelection, by the way, he wins a record number of both Latino and African-American votes. And had he talked more about the 1994 crime bill as I wanted him to, he could have gotten 10% or 12% more 
among African-Americans. And if he runs for, uh, for president again, he's going to set new records uh, in those communities. So I think people are waking up. What is the relationship between this global elite and our intelligence community? Well, I think that they are they are at one. I mean, I think that I think that they are at one. Uh, the uh, the John Kennedy famously distrusted the intelligence community. Said he would smash the CIA into a million pieces because they misled him about uh, the Bay of Pigs. They misled him about the Cuban Missile Crisis. They misled him about the Vietnam War. Uh, you have a an intelligence uh, apparatus that insisted with no proof whatsoever for two years that the Russians had assisted in the election of Donald Trump uh, over Hillary Clinton. And in the end, there is no proof of that. The so-called Steele dossier, which was actually compiled by Hillary Clinton and her campaign with the assistance of Russian intelligence assets, is fabricated. The so-called CrowdStrikes memo uh, which was uh, a study that supposedly proved that the Democratic National Committee had been the victim of an online hack by Russian intelligence. That turns out not to be true either. So, uh, but for two years, the Central Intelligence Agency under John Brennan, uh, the FBI insisted that Russian collusion was a real thing. Robert Mueller, with unlimited money, and unlimited power uh, and unlimited authority could never find any proof of that whatsoever. And Adam Schiff's lame claims that, oh no, we found it. No, you didn't find anything. Adam Schiff said he saw quite, that he had seen more than circumstantial evidence of Russian collusion. He has, he has produced none, zero. I'm familiar with a book you wrote where you accused LBJ of complicity in Kennedy's assassination. Correct. It's was a New York it, Times bestseller. It's called The Man Who Killed Kennedy, The Case Against LBJ. Uh, it, it, I took it to seven different publishers. They all turned me down. They told me it would never be a commercial success. Uh, that book's going to put my grandchildren through college. Uh, it still sells extremely well. I'm not a lawyer. Uh, but before anybody dismisses that idea, um, I suggest they read the book. Um, I use uh, fingerprint evidence, eyewitness evidence, and a lot of deep Texas politics to make the case that Lyndon Johnson had the motive, means, uh, and opportunity to kill John Kennedy. Uh, and his greatest single motive was the fact that he himself was under investigation for corruption in the Bobby Baker scandal. Uh, and in the Billy Sal Estes scandal, Robert Kennedy had begun telling people that Johnson would be dumped from the ticket in 1964 uh, and would be prosecuted. Uh, and it is not incidental uh, that uh, Kennedy, uh, as you know, in his photo finish uh, with Nixon in the 1960 elections, um, had campaigned very hard uh, for the black vote in the country, had pledged an open housing bill, had pledged a voting rights bill, uh, had made a very good strategic decision uh, to call Coretta Scott King when Dr. King was arrested. Uh, and uh, 
It was Lyndon Johnson who, after Kennedy is elected president, convinces JFK that he has to wait on all civil rights issues until a second term, making the case that because all the major Senate committees were chaired by Southern Democrats, segregationists, that pursuing an aggressive civil rights program as JFK had promised in the 1960 election um, would destroy Kennedy's program and that he would have to wait until a second term to do that. Of course, immediately after the assassination of, of JFK, Lyndon Johnson, lifelong segregationist, uh, the author of the Southern Manifesto, who wrote it but didn't sign it himself because he wanted to run for president in 1960, the man who adds the poison pill provision to the 1958 Civil Rights Act, uh, which was passed only because Dr. Martin Luther King was working with Vice President Richard Nixon to round up enough Republican votes to make up for the Southern Democrats who bailed out on the bill. Uh, and on the eve of it being passed, they add an amendment that says that any American charged under that civil rights bill um, will be put to trial before a state, not a federal jury. Well, no jury in Mississippi is going to convict a white man of a civil rights violation in 1958. So uh, Johnson, I think, for two reasons. One, to give him much greater license to go deeper into Vietnam. Uh, and also uh, because he recognized the legacy and the political expediency goes from overnight being the guy who kills every Voting Rights Act, every piece of civil rights legislation, from being a segregationist uh, and leading the segregationist block in the US Senate to becoming known as the father of civil rights in America. It is uh, very well documented in my book. There's also an excellent book called uh, uh, Bystander uh, by Nick Bryant, uh, which talks about uh, John Kennedy's promises on civil rights, but then his non-performance on civil rights issues, mostly at the behest of Lyndon Johnson. Now, there are two Nick Bryants. There's uh, Nick Bryant, who's written a terrific book on Jeffrey Epstein. He's a very good reporter and writer. But uh, this book by Nick Bryant, Bystander, is a, an excellent uh, book uh, that documents all that. Is, is it fair to say that the assassination of John F. Kennedy was an actual coup d'etat? Right in front of I, I, there is no question uh, because uh, John and Robert Kennedy have, uh, they have made powerful enemies. First and foremost, uh, the national security apparatus, the intelligence agencies and the Pentagon uh, are upset about what they believe is Kennedy's mishandling of the Bay of Pigs. Um, they convince Kennedy to move forward with the Bay of Pigs invasion. Um, they assure him that there's gonna be a popular uprising on the Cuban island, uh, that's not true. They also promise him that there will be air cover for the Cubans who are storming the beaches provided by Panamanian flagged, uh, pardon me, uh, Panamanian flagged bombers uh, flown by Cuban pilots. Uh, that operation is canceled the day before the invasion. Then they attempt to pressure JFK into sending in the US Air Force, which he refuses to do because his approval of the Bay of Pigs incursion was always based on the theoretical position that we could plausibly claim it was a Cuban insurgency not funded uh, or directed by us. They also are unhappy uh, with his handling of the Cuban Missile Crisis. Um, 
they knew in 1962, but we didn't learn until 40 years later uh, that John and Robert Kennedy agreed to remove US missiles from Italy and Turkey, changing the balance of power in the European theater in return to, for, for a pledge from Khrushchev to remove Russian missiles from Cuba. But that agreement has no on-site inspection. So we were never sure whether the Russian missiles really left Cuba or not. Um, and uh, Oliver Stone has argued, I think somewhat um, uh, accurately, uh, that Kennedy was beginning to sour on the war in Vietnam. He had visited Vietnam as a student. Um, he was beginning to have questions about what we were doing there. Uh, and of course, uh, immediately upon his death, Lyndon Johnson escalated the war in Vietnam tremendously. Johnson, of course, and his wife owned an enormous amount of Bell helicopter stock and Sikorsky helicopter stock uh, and General Dynamics stock. So they made millions of dollars off of the Vietnam War at the same time. Organized crime is in on it because Joseph P. Kennedy, Ambassador Kennedy, uh, had made a deal um, with uh, Sam Giancana and the bosses of the other families that if John Kennedy was elected, that the Eisenhower administration efforts to deport Santo Traficante, uh, who ran the mob in Louisiana, uh, pardon me, who ran the, the mob in Florida, and Carlos Marcello, who ran the mob in both Texas and Louisiana, uh, and who were both at that point the target of deportation efforts by the Eisenhower Justice Department, that those efforts would be dropped. Um, they were, the mob was double-crossed. Uh, they put up a million dollars in 1960 dollars. It's a lot of money. Uh, and they twisted arms for JFK in the West Virginia primary and in the general election in both Texas and Illinois and probably elsewhere. Uh, and then of course, Big Texas Oil, they were upset because John Kennedy wanted to repeal the oil depletion allowance, uh, which would have cost them hundreds of millions of more dollars uh, uh, in, uh, in taxes. Um, I've also been, uh, I, I am convinced that the intelligence agencies uh, convinced themselves that John Kennedy had become a, a crystal meth addict, that he was uh, being attended by a doctor from New York, Dr. Max Jacobson, also known as Dr. Feelgood, who was attending many of the beautiful people of the day, Frank Sinatra, Maria Calais, uh, Aristotle Onassis, Nelson Rockefeller, treating all of these people with what he told them was a proprietary blend of vitamins and enzymes that lifted their energy. John Kennedy suffered from chronic back pain from his war injuries, which were quite serious. He wore a back brace most of the time to be able to walk. Uh, and um, he had come under the treatment of Dr. Jacobson. If you go look at the records for the manifest for Kennedy's trip to Vienna for the uh, summit with Nikita Khrushchev, Dr. Jacobson is on the manifest. He traveled with the presidential party. So I am convinced that the intelligence agencies convinced themselves uh, that this was a security risk of some time, of some kind. It is uh, reported that Robert Kennedy was very upset by uh, his brother being attended uh, by Dr. Jacobson, that he took the 
injections that JFK was taking. By the way, at a certain point, he started giving them to Jackie as well, took them to the FBI lab, and they were an early proprietary blend of, uh, of, uh, of crystal meth. Uh, and um, he told his brother that he didn't think it was a good idea for him to continue taking this. And John Kennedy reportedly said, look, I don't care if it's horse piss, if it makes me feel good and I can function, I'm taking it. Uh, he was in chronic pain. He was, uh, he was an incredible war hero, if you've read uh, about uh, the attack on PT-109. So I, I think that the intelligence agencies, this is all in my book, uh, I think the intelligence agencies convinced themselves uh, and rationalized uh, the murder of JFK along these lines. Is it possible that Jeffrey Epstein today, well, not today, but recently, has been tied to the intelligence agencies as well? Uh, I believe that to be the case. I mean, I, I in my book, The Clinton's War on Women, uh, which was published in 2015, uh, after Nick Bryan, I think I'm the American author who's written more uh, about Epstein earlier than others. Almost everything you think you learned in the last two years, I wrote back then the manifests for the Lolita Express, the list of, uh, of uh, uh, global elites who visited the island, including um, uh, Bill Clinton. Uh, I read through mountains of transcripts on the law, legal cases uh, against Epstein. Um, I believe Epstein was a soldier of fortune, as it were, or, uh, you know, he was a, a blackmailer for hire. Um, I think it is conceivable that he worked for, for U.S. intelligence. I think he worked for Saudi intelligence, Israeli intelligence. Uh, I think he also may, may have been involved in currency uh, manipulation. Um, but there's a bit there in that book. That book, of course, never got reviewed anyplace. So it sold very well, but it never got reviewed anyplace. But a lot of what you think, I don't mean you, but a lot of what people generally think they learned about Epstein in the last couple of years, I reported as early as 2015. Was he involved in the occult in any way, shape, or form? Because that temple he had in, in the Virgin Islands, it had no windows, had locks on the outside, and an incinerator on the premises. What was really going on with him with that? I would only, I've read everything that you have read and seen, but I would be speculating. Uh, I don't know. Did not, did not pop up in my early research. Okay. Now let's, let's get to 2020. That was a year, the mother of all elections. What really took place in 2020? Well, of course, as you know, um, saying what you really think is one of the things that gets you banned today. You're not allowed as an American citizen to say there was a record number of anomalies and irregularities in the election. Um, we are told with an adamancy that that's the big lie. Uh, and any questioning of that uh, shows you're a conspiracy theorist or maybe you're insane. But when more people vote than are registered to vote in a given precinct in Philadelphia, in fact, many precincts, that's a problem. When they stopped the counting at three o'clock in the morning uh, and the Republican uh, poll watchers or, or election day watchers go home 
and 300,000 ballots pop up in Michigan and 100% of them are all for Joe Biden, I'd say that's a, a red flag. I mean, there, there's overwhelming evidence uh, of anomalies and irregularities. For those who say, well, the courts rejected all that. No, that's not true. The courts didn't hear it. They didn't reject the evidence, they rejected the case. They never heard the case. No, no judicial body, no regulatory body, no legislative body, state or federal, has ever weighed the evidence. Uh, the audits that have been conducted in, in Arizona, uh, the partial audits uh, in Georgia, uh, growing evidence uh, in, in uh, Michigan, uh, the fact that Wisconsin State Supreme Court has now said that the drop boxes were completely uh, illegal. The lower courts in Pennsylvania have ruled that mail-in voting is unconstitutional. Um, all those things would bring the results into question. Now, is the election going to be reversed? Absolutely not. And people, and I know there's a lot of people out there who think, oh, Trump is going to be restored. That is not going to happen. There's no legal precedent for that. Um, uh, there's no pending legal action that would, that would accomplish that. This is gonna upset a bunch of people who may even like me, but it's just, it's just the truth. I don't see the election being reversed. Um, I do think that every week there is new information being, uh, being exposed and being published, but just saying, that you believe the election may have been fraudulent, that's a, that's a dangerous place to be in America today, which is a very sad thing that, uh, that you don't really have the, the First Amendment right to say that anymore without being called a, you know, a conspiracy theorist or a white supremacist or worse. Did Rudy Giuliani, Sidney Powell, L. Linwood, and others, did they mishandle the election fraud cases? See, I was not involved in any of those machinations. So it's very hard for me to say, meaning I only know what you know. And was, I wasn't there, wasn't in touch with any of those people. Uh, the legal theory that, uh, that the vice president had the authority not to reject electoral college events, but to send electors back to the states for the state legislators to examine, I've heard it both ways. I've heard it from authoritative lawyers both ways. Lawyers I respect, like my friend Judge Andrew Zapolitano, says absolutely not. That's just not. That's incorrect. Other attorneys have argued that it is. I, I'm not. I'm not an attorney, so I am. I'm not certain. Um, I also, you know, I, I don't know what transpired in the famous meeting that the January 6th committee talked about where General Flynn and Sidney Powell uh, and, and uh, Mayor Giuliani, I think, uh, and Pat Cipollone, the White House counsel, um, there are different versions of that meeting depending on who you talk to. Uh, General Flynn insists to me that he never advocated martial law, nor did he advocate seizing all the machines, although he's been accused of that. So without being there, I could not tell you my opinion. Um, I do think uh, President Trump should have been better prepared legally for a disputed election. There appears to have been no preparations made. 
uh, but this ship has sailed in terms of the results of the last election. That doesn't mean that we shouldn't have election law reform to ensure that our next elections and the elections after that are free, fair, uh, honest, and transparent. Um, and that is happening in some states and it's not happening in others. How do you see the uh, Republican Party faring in the midterms? Um, well, uh, again, uh, I think the backdrop is there for a Republican resurgence, but I also recognize how deep the establishment control of both parties is. So if, if Republicans were to win the House uh, and the Senate, that doesn't necessarily mean an abrupt change in the direction of the country. Ironically, the slimmer, if they do take control of the House, the slimmer the margin, the more likely that a small group of, of insurgents, as it will, or radicals, could insist on uh, a, a more radical agenda uh, away from globalism, uh, to crack down on big tech, for example, to try to end the censorship online. I mean, uh, now I noticed that you're on Twitter. I remember the days when I was on Twitter. Uh, those are the good old days. Remember the days that I was allowed on Instagram. Those are the good old days. Um, I, I really think this, uh, that if Republicans take control, communications uh, and an open, free, unfettered internet open to everybody um, should be a very high priority in terms of writing the politics uh, in this country. But it, it's, it is, uh, first of all, it's not even August yet. Uh, and as I said earlier in politics, a week is a lifetime. Uh, the Republicans should not count their chickens until they're hatched. Um, I, it would appear that you're gonna have a Republican resurgence, but I, anybody who thinks the Republicans are gonna win the seat, the House by 80 seats or 40 seats, that, that's not going to happen. Um, redistricting alone, or I should say district, congressional districting, um, really leaves a very small number of swing districts. Most of the districts are either overwhelmingly Democratic or overwhelmingly Republican. Uh, and the Senate is going to be decided by a vote or two. Uh, and some of these races are very cloudy and difficult to read. Uh, Pennsylvania, for example, where I would have thought that the nomination of Dr. Oz would be extremely unlikely. Here he is as the Republican nominee. Uh, and the state appears to be on the, uh, the, the uh, cusp of electing a guy who campaigns in cargo pants and doesn't appear to own a suit. So I don't know, I can't tell you. In, in two, 2001, Bill Clinton left office and the national debt was 5.8 trillion dollars. Today it is $30.5 trillion. Does it matter? Or is there any way we can get out of that kind of debt? Well, the only way we can get out of that kind of debt is to grow our way out of it because they just seem to print more money when they need it. Oh, let's send another 60 billion to, to Ukraine. Where's that money coming from? Families can't, can't get baby formula in this country. Uh, we, we have 370,000 homeless veterans in this country. 
they just, I, I, I don't know where they get this money. They just print it as they need it. Uh, and um, no, we have, a, we have a debt bomb. The answer, since you're, I don't think you're ever going to, uh, first of all, you have a huge amount of debt to begin with. We need to stop wild spending, but we also need to, to make the economy grow. John Kennedy did it. Ronald Reagan did it. Donald Trump did it. We can do it again, but we re really need a robust economy, and we don't have that today. Was COVID a bioweapon? Sure appears that way to me. I'm not telling you that it wasn't a real thing, meaning it, is, it very definitely is a serious virus. Uh, I had it. I was I it very, too. very sick. Um, without ivermectin and hydroxychloroquine, I don't think I would have recovered. That may get you banned right there uh, uh, here at Schoon TV. Uh, but uh, I decided, uh, you know, a heavy regimen of vitamin C, vitamin D, zinc, uh, and those two medications. Uh, I had it. Um, and the worst thing about it was the way that it clouds your mind. So when I first got sick, I just thought I was overtired. Maybe I was getting a little cold. I'd been working too hard. Uh, and then um, I started to get the chills, fever, lack of appetite. But the worst part was the mental fog. And for five days, I didn't seek any medical assistance. I just kept believing it would go away. And then finally, um, when I was able to find a doctor who would prescribe those medications for me, and I got them, uh, within four hours of taking my first doses of those medications, I began to feel better. The next day, I was 50% better. The following day, I was about 75% better. The following day, I was almost completely back to normal, or at least what is normal for me. Uh, and the only hangover was a hacking cough that held on for about six weeks. Uh, so uh, I am, uh, it's very definitely a real thing, but I don't think there's any question that we did finance gain of function in a Chinese lab uh, and that people took advantage of a very real virus for political purposes. Uh, now you have both Dr. Fauci and Dr. Burks essentially admitting, well, we never said it was going to protect you from infection. That's exactly what they said. The vaccine, uh, and this, yes. And it doesn't make any sense to me. Look, I, I don't know about you. I was vaccinated for polio. I never got polio. My parents had me vaccinated for, for the polio because they believed it, the vaccination would protect me from polio. And it did. I was vaccinated for chickenpox. Uh, a vaccination by definition is supposed to prevent infection. But a vaccination that doesn't prevent you from getting infection, that doesn't make any sense to me. And then to say, oh, you need four booster shots. No, I think this was a multi-billion dollar gambit uh, and I don't think, I do think it was serious, but I don't think it was ever as contagious or as deadly uh, as we were originally told. Uh, and more people when it's over may have di may die from the ventilators uh, or for the misdiagnosis of drugs. Um, I wrote a piece, pardon me, I gave a speech in which I said that uh, two things. I said, eventually I believed uh, that millions of people would either be damaged or die from the vaccination. They called me out on that. I said, I'm not wrong, I'm just premature. Uh, and I also said that ultimately I could see them putting a chip under our skin, a microchip 
keep track of who's vaccinated. Nanotechnology. And we've seen that technology now announced. So um, Newsweek, by the way, just so you know, that's not the Newsweek that you and I grew up with. News, that Newsweek went out of business. They sold their logo, their masthead, and their corporate name to the Daily Beast. So Newsweek Online is not the Newsweek of old. Okay, last but not least, Mr. Stone, you have a book, Spartacus, about yes. Cory Booker. Tell us a little bit about that book, please. Uh, in 1980, uh, I was assigned uh, to handle New Jersey among the other states uh, for, uh, for Governor Ronald Reagan and his campaign for governor. Uh, and I uh, met and pursued uh, a former assembly speaker uh, in New Jersey named Tom Kane. Tom Kane uh, had marched with Dr. King as a college student. Uh, Tom Kane was a proponent of a broader, uh, uh, more inclusive Republican Party. Tom Kane was that rare patrician Republican who had deep connections and roots and relationships uh, in the city of Newark uh, and in the African-American community. He was a great governor. Uh, in 1981, he hired me to manage his campaign for governor. Uh, he won by 1,600 votes, roughly 1,609, I think it was, out of two and a half million cast, closest election in New Jersey history. Uh, I got to know New Jersey extremely well. I started watching the political career of Cory Booker. Cory Booker is, without any question, the single most corrupt member of the U.S. Senate. Cory Booker would steal a hot stove. Cory Booker has used every office he has had to line his own pockets. My book, Spartacus, which I wrote with Dr. Randy Short, is not focused in any way on Cory Booker's personal life because I don't care about his personal life. I care about his record in public office and whether it was profiteering when he was mayor or profiteering in the US Senate, he's become very, very wealthy. Now, I think it was Harry Truman who said, Show me a guy who got rich in politics and I'll show you a crook. Uh, so uh, this book, Spartacus, uh, something I'm very proud of that I wrote with uh, my friend, Dr. Randy Short, is an expose on the ethics of Cory Booker. So for example, when he was mayor, he has the city water authority give a $600,000 legal contract to his law firm. As soon as it lands at the law firm, he takes the money, puts it in his pocket. Then when this comes to light, he claims that, well, even though he was an ex officio member of the city authority, he hadn't voted for the contract in his law firm, except for the minutes of the meeting show him present and voting yes. Uh, and then he changes his story three times. So that had nothing to do with the water authority. That 600 grand was a deferred compensation for my law firm. No, no, wait a minute. It was it was the buyout of my partnership. Oh, wait a minute. It related to a different client. Look, I can't even keep his lies straight. <clears throat> Plus, I'm convinced he lives in Greenwich Village. So uh, I, the book is uh, there for people to read. I think it's pretty compelling. Um, you, where, can they, where can they get it? I knew you were going to ask me that, and I'm, I'm ill-prepared with the answer. Uh, you can get it from the publisher. Um, we may need to have to drop that in in post. Okay. Okay, definitely that. Sir, I just want to thank you for the time. You've given me a lot of your time today on a Sunday, and I appreciate it.
Well, this has been a great interview. I really appreciate the opportunity. You got it. All right, take it easy, thanks.